Hey Church family and friends of Genesis, I'd like to give you a little bit of an intro to the message that you're about to view. This past weekend, we had a tremendous seminar with Dr. Master Giovanni entitled Genesis Factor. And during that seminar, we used much of our recording and video equipment to facilitate the taping of that seminar. As is often the case when we do this over the course of a weekend, getting all of that equipment back in place for Sunday morning's service is sometimes a challenge. And thus was the case this past Sunday morning in the recording and taping of this message that you're about to view. It's my fault that certain equipment was not in place on Sunday morning so that our camera operator could videotape uh, Dr. Master Giovanni in the normal way that we're used to with the quality and with the smoothness of operation. And so while you're watching this message, you'll see that camera angles uh, are not quite correct, uh, framing is not quite correct, and certainly not the quality that we're used to delivering to you. And then the smoothness of the movement as the camera operator is following Dr. Master Giovanni is certainly not very smooth and a bit jerky. So I apologize to you for that. It is my fault and not our camera operators, and I thought I'd just issue that bit of disclaimer as you prepare to watch this message by Dr. Master Giovanni. Enjoy, and thank you for your viewing. <coughs> I hope to be done at a, an appropriate time. I felt, I felt like maybe two or three o'clock would be good. <laughs> Is that okay with you? Absolutely. One person will be here for that whole time. That's so good. You yeah, have already had a taste of what it is to be long. So this is going to seem like a real short message for me. They were with me all night, three hours Thursday, well, almost, yeah, about three hours, Thursday night, Friday night, and for about six hours on Saturday as we taught the Genesis Factor. Uh, it, was a, it was a good time. Um, uh, it was a good time, challenging time, trying to change some paradigms. You know, where have we come from as a church, not locally, time-wise. But I want to... So it was just a good time. But I want, what I want to talk to you today is about, um, uh, besides Superman, <laughs> my very favorite thing. I mean, when some kids were little, they had teddy bears. I had a model I made with my grandma that I carried around wherever I went. And I'm so excited it's out again this week. Godzilla. <laughs> Godzilla is so cool. Now what most people don't know, and it is available, I would, I would actually recommend it if you're interested. It's the very first Godzilla mo movie, but most of us know the Godzilla movie from the basis of the Raymond Burr, it was called the King of Monsters Godzilla movies, all black and white one. Well, actually, Raymond Burr was added into that film four years later. And they tried to mock all the sets up, etc. You never saw Raymond Burr on camera with the actual actors in the movie. <coughs> and the reason for that is when the movie was originally created, the first movie, and this, I just believe it or not, this has something to do with some spiritual things today I hope to talk to you about. Um, <laughs> and it's not because Godzilla has the word God in it. <laughs> 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 redefines when the scripture says, you know, talking about the roar of a lion. You think of Godzilla instead now. Uh, the, 
the thing about that first movie, if, and it is available with subtitles now, because we're so far removed from the bombing of Nagasaki and Hiroshima, is that the movie was the Japanese culture's way of dealing with the bombing of Nagasaki and Hiroshima. And it's a very painful, the opening scene is desolation, actually, in uh, the original movie. And there's a love story that's involved with it. And the whole point of the psyche of the Japanese people and, and is how they were wrestling with how they themselves, because if you look at the story of Godzilla, they themselves awoke a sleeping giant that came and brought destruction to them, where they brought it about upon themselves. And after that, the, even the, the early Godzilla movies, not when they got kind of silly in the 70s, but although those are a lot of fun, Godzilla, and then back in the 90s, it went back to the original, for those of you who are into the Godzilla series uh, at all. Godzilla was the conscience of the Japanese people. If, the, if they're in a good state, Godzilla would lay rest and sleep. But the second they got contrary to themselves, Godzilla would awaken and wreak havoc on them. That's how that kind of goes. And that's what Godzilla was. The point is, is that the culture was wrestling with their spirituality. Well, right around the same time in the 50s in the United States, we were all happy. You know, Donna Reed show, later my three sons. Everything was kind of happy. You know, we won the war. Life is good. But in our culture, there was an issue that arose. And the issue was, is we were still testing the bomb. And if you start, and what I'm now going to talk to you about is what I would call the cultural gospel in the sense on how our culture shapes the message that God brings to us. And we go through seasons of transformation as God is constantly trying to perfect humanity into his kingdom. Now notice I said humanity and kingdom, I didn't say church. Church is the vehicle really through which God is trying to use to impact humanity, but God is thinking as much or maybe even more about how to touch the heart of humanity than he is in the sense of simply having the church right. And I'm kind of glad about that because if it was about the church being right, we're all up the creek. Well, they were testing the bomb. And at that point, especially the young people, and if you go back in that day, some of you are not old enough, some of you may remember along with me, although we're not that old, is there were people like Bob Dylan. Who's giggling there? See that? Oh, well, you're number six. She said her name was Vi, V-I, you know, the number six. So be nice, Vi. <laughs> I was going to say that, but I won't be mean, so I'll just leave that alone and keep going. If you, if you were number six. <laughs> there, Joan Baez was a singer back then. All these folk singers, Bob Dylan, even some of the, the more uh, moderate, uh, even Rolling Stones, all these folks in the 60s, be, in late 60s, early 70s, began to sing kind of anti-establishment songs. And a lot of the motivation was because they 
couldn't fathom the idea of building a nuclear weapon that can destroy half of humanity with one push of a button. Some, as a woman in my church said, she would go through to school and they would teach the bomb exercises. You know, in California, we have earthquake ex exercises. Bad enough you got that. Now you got bomb exercises. And some of you remember, remember, the sirens would go off. You'd have to get under your desk because of the fear of the bomb. Well, what that did to the psyche of, the, of the young people was a very fatalistic. The world can end tomorrow very simply, very fast. How did God respond? God responded by saying... Well, if the world's going to end tomorrow, that would mean Jesus is coming back real soon. And all the theology, all the things that began to then happen in the early 70s, from its music, the, the church, God had to go outside the regular church, established church because the church wasn't thinking on that. They were still stuck in the 50s somewhere with Donna Reed. Okay? But God began to do something in the community of people where before you know it, they started living in communes, etc. They were getting ready because Jesus was coming back and we had amazing singers. I don't know if some of you remember second chapter of Acts. Randy Stonehill, Larry Norman, Chuck Gerard. You start going down the list. Uh, uh, Mustard Seed Faith. And all of them talk about one song by, by Odin Fong, who was the lead guitarist of, of uh, Mustard Seed Faith. His famous song was, He's Coming for the Children. Second chapter Acts singing, well, haven't you heard? Jesus com is coming. It could be today. Uh, Randy Stonehill, good news, Christ is returning, good news. Now the world is learning good news. Christ is returning, yes, Jesus gonna bring me on home. So everything became eschatology, end times, all the teaching. You see, the move started to happen before the theology was there. And then before you know it, they started building a theology. Hal Lindsey, great, great planet Earth. All this stuff, and we, before you know it, everything was about Jesus coming back, Jesus coming back to the point where people were packing their spiritual rapture bag standing on mountains waiting for Jesus to show up and I can remember sitting in a meeting after I had just gotten saved I got saved in 79 so I got saved at the tail end of the Jesus movement I was sitting in a meeting in 82 and 83 where Hal Lindsey was talking about how all the prophecies are now aligned in any day now World War Armageddon is going to break forth and all this and guess what it never happened So what happened actually to our Christian culture? Well, gee whiz, it's early 80s now. Jesus hasn't showed up. We've been saying that now for almost 20 years. What's going on? Well, a lot of the people living in the communes, the situations they were in, the kind of financial decisions they made, they realized, you know what? I need a job. <laughs> I need a house. I got two kids raising them in this commune. I need a, guy. I need a place to live. So how does God respond? Word of faith movement. He responds by giving us a word on how to believe God for finances, how to believe God for healing, how to believe God for family, how to believe God for marriage, how to believe... And he starts with all this. Fast forward. The problem is then, like, and like, just like the other movement, there became an excess where after a while the motive was my spirituality is gauged by how much prosperity I have. And before you know it, the culture became sick of it. And people began to lose interest in church because of the excess. Then there was moral failures and all these things. What happened? 
to those who claimed they knew Jesus. And, and with that then came the, what I call the prophets of doom and gloom where everything became, in, from the word message, and this keeps resurging, we became very legalistic. Now there's more I could tell. I mean, there's, there's a lot you can go. You can go back to the 30s, talking, talk about the, uh, the building of Angelus Temple and God's use of women and how God each time brought enough of truth to move us forward. But the bottom line is, just like a rocket ship, the stage you're in can only take, take you so far. It's got to break off and then the next stage has to kick in to take you to the next place. Well, one of the things that is happening now that God has been speaking a lot to us about is this grace message. So if I can, for the next 20 minutes or so, talk to you about four specific things. Faith, grace, righteousness, and sin. Because when we go back to... New Testament times. We go back to the early church fathers and we read the stuff on what they preached, how they thought, and we look at some of the things we have been saying today. Some of them are a bit removed. The very first time I ever met Jeff and Nina, Jeff preached on this verse. It was Luke 19.10. How Jesus came to seek and to save all that was lost. So I want to talk to you a bit about that today. So if the sermon goes really well, you can say, wow, John, look what you did with Jeff, Jeff's message. If it goes really bad, you can blame Jeff. <laughs> what was really lost? When you think about it, what was lost? Well, man, I'm going to suggest no. Man is a part of what was lost. Creation. True, but that was only a part of it. What was the one thing that God established in the Garden of Eden that was the focal point of everything? Keep going. His image. Let us make man in our image after our likeness. That statement encompasses all the other things you guys said. Reflecting the image of God. When the fall occurred, the image was gone. And God has been at work since to recapture, rework, and reestablish his image in the earth. That's why you exist. Let me talk about faith first. Because I'm going to actually talk about sin last with the intention of making an ultimate point. Faith is a vehicle through which the image is revealed. In the Hebrew language, we use the word faith Almost every day if you're a Christian, we don't even think twice about it. Anybody know, if, unless you're in Genesis factory, you've got to keep your mouth shut. <laughs> Anybody know what the word faith is in Hebrew? It's amen. 
How many times, we, that's our little send button on our email. I said that in Genesis Factor. You know, it's kind of how we do things now. You know, the address is in Jesus' name. Because you've got to pray in Jesus' name. So we got, okay, put, you know, Jesus at 77heaven.com. And then we put in our prayer request. And then we say, Amen, send. Now, if you don't say Amen, you really didn't hit the send button. And if you didn't say in Jesus' name, it had no address to go. That's kind of how it's, that's how we, you know. Well, think, it, think about it for a minute. Faith, amen, in Hebrew is a verb. It's not a noun. It's not until you get to the New Testament, the word faith, pistio and pistios, is um, faith, a noun, and a verb. But here's the idea. How does that work out? It's like this. Faith, you, you say, well, I've got faith because I believe in this. No, you just have a belief. Beliefs are the foundation of religion. They are not the foundation of spirituality. Faith is the foundation of spirituality in this sense. Faith is like breath. You have breath because you're breathing. If you don't breathe, you don't have breath. Faith is a constant living thing that you do 24-7, 52 days out of the year. Faith is your spiritual breath. And it's not just believing, but perceiving in the reality of God. Faith says, remember, it said earlier, I mentioned it, Abraham believed God and it was accounted unto him for righteousness. Abraham started breathing. He was breathing what God revealed to him. Now this now segues to that word righteousness. Because for most of us, in one, in one respect I'll say it's not erroneous because that's the source material we've had, has defined righteousness as right standing with God. It comes from a British word, right wiseness, which means to be in right standing with the court. The problem is this. It's a legal term. And if you read most of our lexicons, you're going to find that righteousness meant to be right as in legally correct with the law and the system of laws. The problem is, this word was used in the Bible long before there was ever a law. The law didn't show up until Moses. So how can I be righteous if there's no law? Because sadakim in Hebrew really has nothing to do with being right with God legally. It means to walk the path. Abraham was faithing. And his faithing was walking the path. I mean, we're going to find Abraham going down, which we mentioned earlier too, in another context, of course, that Abraham went down to Egypt became nervous, said to Sarah, Sarah, everybody knows that you're so hot. <laughs> Do me a favor. If they find that I'm your husband, this is Jeff talking, by the way, right? 
just to be clear. Right? If, if everybody finds out that, but he's sitting over there. I say, I was going to do it. Over, yeah, never mind. <laughs> so, 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 but if everybody finds out I'm your husband, they're going to kill me because Pharaoh won't have you if I'm alive. So lie for me. Now, how many of you ladies would feel absolutely comfortable doing that? <laughs> what a man. That's a man's man. Babe, lie for me. So I don't get in trouble. Now, if we were going by righteousness, according to the law, the law would say you shouldn't bear false witness. Abraham's in deep trouble. He lost his righteousness. But not according to God. Because he was still walking the path as far as God was concerned. He may have been in that spot doing what he was doing, but in his mind, he's still faithing. He's still believing what God said to him, even though he was making this mistake. It then is ratified with a priest by the name of Melchizedek. Of which order Jesus is a part of. The order of Melchizedek. That's what the Bible tells us in Hebrews chapter 5 through 7. Chapter 7. The law is of the priesthood of Levi. Different priesthood. And if you look at the height of the Levitical temple worship under the law. The greatest manifestation in their temple of what the law and right and wrong and all that produces is the murder of a lamb. That's their greatest expression of worship. Killing the lamb. This is why Paul calls the law the ministry of death. Well, where does it come from? It comes from that wonderful tree in the Garden of Eden called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which caused the fall. And I've said to you, I know the last time I was here, I must have, and that's this. If by partaking of the tree, listen, especially if you're preachers, if you, partaking of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil caused man to fall, why do you think preaching about good and evil is going to bring life? It won't. It never will. Life is a different system. On top of it, when the serpent said to the woman, don't you know that in the day that you eat of this tree, you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. It was the inference that here's this image and likeness of God already, and he's suggesting to them, you're really not like God, are you? You got to eat this. And the second they reached for it, they acknowledged within themselves, I'm not like God. They already were, but... Now they're already, I'm not like God. Then, here's the ultimate lie, and that's if by me knowing good and evil, I will be like God. And if you look at every religious system on the planet, it's basically about the more I know good and the more I shun evil, the more I'm going to be like God, the more happy he's going to be. And that's the tree that killed us. <clears throat> and the law, all 613 commandments, is the ultimate expression of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. It encapsulates every other religious system. It's like, okay, guys, you keep thinking this. I'm gonna, God says, I'm going to reveal 613 laws. Notice the big ten first, right? right? Moses had the original tablet. 
right? He went up the mountain, had the original tablet. That's right. Okay. Got the Ten Commandments. The little icons. Got the Ten Commandments, broke his tablet, and it didn't have the extended warranty program. <laughs> so rather than getting another one from God, God told him to bring up his own rocks this time, and he's going to have to chisel his own. That's what the scripture says. The moral of the story, Steve Jobs didn't have the original tablet. It was Moses. If you learned anything from church today, and he didn't have the extended warranty program, so always make sure you get the extended warranty. <laughs> What Moses, what Moses brought to us really was the proof. 613 commandments, which the, the, the Hebrew community will tell you, each one of them represents a desire of man. And it proves that you can't fulfill all six. In other words, this is going to be the ultimate expression of death. If you really believe you're going to be like me by knowing good and evil, this is the way you're going to accomplish it, and this is the ultimate expression of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Thus, 2 Corinthians 3 Paul calls it the ministry of death. So think of, let's think of what we have. We now have faith, which is, a, which is a, your breath of the spirit, if you want to call it that. It's your breathing. It's how you live. It's a verb. It's a constant, evolving, transformational thing. Righteousness is walking the path. It's not about doing right or wrong. Then you have the word grace. Now there's a lot that's been said about grace, a lot of good things, but I just want to simplify it into one particular thing. Grace was a bad word, in a sense, to Greek philosophy. The Greek word charis was a bad word because it meant, literally, pleasure. And to the Greek mind, who poo-pooed charis because their idea was the carnal pleasures of this world will distract you from the wisdom you are to gain through philosophical thought. So charis was not a good thing. The apostles adapt that word not to mean God's unmerited favor. That can be an outgrowth of, of grace. But that's really not the source meaning. Nor does it mean, as we've inferred, getting what you don't deserve. There was no, the first time the word grace is used is again in the book of Genesis. There was no law to get what you don't deserve. There was no law present to tell you you didn't deserve it. So how could that be a definition? Of course, then we had to redefine mercy a little bit and say, well, mercy is not getting what you do deserve. You know, it's like, step away from the Bible before you hurt yourself or someone else. <laughs> Charis meant pleasure. It's the Greek word hana. I mean, the Hebrew word hana. Charis meant to experience pleasure. What was the Garden of Eden? Pleasure. Eden means pleasure. Sarah said in, uh, let me see if I have it here in my notes. It's okay if I don't preach with my notes, right? Sarah said in Genesis 18:12, "Therefore Sarah laughed within herself saying, have, after I've grown out, shall I have this Eden, my Lord, being old also, this Eden, my this pleasure." It's the garden of pleasure. It's all about pleasure. Wow. So what's this pleasure all about? What's, what is this what is what is this pleasure? What does it mean? It's quite simple. It's the pleasure in knowing I'm the image of God. This is the purpose of the Superman shirt. 
of all the DC comic book heroes, all our heroes have to go and put a costume on to go fight bad guys. Superman's the only guy that takes his costumes off and becomes who he really is when he goes out there and makes, brings reconciliation. Men and women of God, I'm here to tell you today, get your religious costume off. Amen. Wear your big SS for the Savior and be the image and likeness of God, not because of anything you have done, but because of everything he has done. You say, but what if I mess up? It means absolutely nothing. Not when it comes to you being the image and likeness of God. Because if you think you got to reach out for it, you're biting the fruit of the serpent. And if you think you've got to be good, moralistically correct all the time to be the revelation of his image, then you also are eating the fruit of that tree. Well, are you condoning sin? Glad you brought that up. <laughs> the word sin in Hebrew, it first appears in Genesis chapter 3. Most of us use the phrase, missing the mark. Chate in Hebrew, missing the mark. Now that's an interesting word because what mark is he talking about if there's no law? Because most of us would say, well, you committed adultery, missed the mark. Well, you did this, oh, missed the mark. Oh, you know, you ate shrimp, shell food, missed the mark. I mean, if you're going to go that far, I mean, you can't say okay to these rules and not say to the other 603. Wow. That's what Jesus said. That's what James said in, the in his epistle of James. If you're going to play with one law, you've got to play with them all. And let me tell you, Christian religion, for the most part, is a refashioning of every other religious system. I mean, we, we pray to, oh gosh, we pray to God, you know, and we, oh, I got to pray to God and bring him my offering so I get my blessing. Well, that's what we did to pagan gods. Why are we treating God like a pagan god? God has no interest in you giving him something so he could bless you. What God is interested in is you looking exactly like him. Well, my conduct, no, it doesn't start by your conduct. It starts by you recognizing you are. It starts about you recognizing you are the image of God irrespective of your behavior. But if you start realizing it, you start seeing it, you start smelling it, you start tasting it, and started living out of the tree of life, all that moral stuff takes care of itself. But I don't live by moral correctness. I live because of the reality of the Christ who offers to me the image and likeness of God. I mean, after all, isn't that the ultimate point of Romans chapter 8? That we are all to be conformed into the image of the Son. It didn't say that we all be do morally correct things. It's first brought up, this word sin, is first brought up in Genesis 3 when... Cain... is offering up to God an offering. And God tells him these phrases. This is in Genesis chapter... I don't know if it's up there or not. Genesis chapter 4, verse 5 through 6. 
It says this. But he did not respect Cain and his offering. And Cain was very angry and his countenance fell. So the Lord God said to Cain, why are you angry? Why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you not, do not do well, sin lies at the door. And its desire is for you, but you should rule over it. That is the, where does he say? Sin lies at the door. That's the first time the word sin is introduced in scripture. Now there's a little play on words here. Listen carefully. Cain, the Hebrew word Cain, means sad sack, lamentful, mully grub guy. Oh man. You ever meet people like that? That's Cain. Anybody know what Abel means? Because you know the Bible never said that, that the reason why Cain's offering, I mean Abel's offering was accepted because it was a lamb. I know we infer that. We make the Jesus thing out of it. But it really doesn't say that. What it says was because of Abel's faith. You know what Abel means? Remember what I told you righteousness meant to walk the path? Abel means to get off the path. It means vanity. It means empty-headedness. Abel was a corrupt mess-up by the definition of his name. What got Cain so angry was mess-up guys offering was being accepted and his wasn't because he did all the right things I mean he brought it well it wasn't the vegetables hey Leviticus says vegetables offerings are totally acceptable so it wasn't the type of offering Abel means walk the, off the path vanity empty headedness Cain was upset about this because this guy was not everything he should be, but was being accepted, or better set, was becoming and revealing the truth in reality. Because the word, will you not be accepted, is not even an appropriate translation. It had nothing to do with acceptance. But again, that's, that's our translation stuff we see through the lens of our own legalisms. And King James, that started that, has nothing to do with being accepted. The word in Hebrew there is shin aleph tet, which means, which means to be cheerful. All he said was, Cain, be cheerful. Be excited about this, Cain. And everything will be fine. What was the difference between the two? Doesn't it sound like another two brothers you know of? Yeah, the prodigal son. All Jesus did was take the Cain and Abel story and unpack it in the prodigal son story. The older brother, who did served in the father's field, did everything correctly, was not in the house. But the brother that was a mess up, who came home, the father received, didn't even mention it. Oh, father, I sinned against you. The father doesn't even acknowledge that. He says, you're home. Let's have a party. Well, older brother's really ticked off about that. Cain is ticked off about what Abel is experiencing. Because sin believes it's got to do right and wrong to be happy to be accepted. But that's not the case. God is trying to bring a conversion to the church. So I'm going to end with these verses. Because I'm going to suggest to you who's really being converted here. 
So I would like somebody to speed this up for me. I want somebody to read for me Deuteronomy 23, verse 1, and Leviticus 21, verses 16 through 21. I've gone past my curfew. I'm trying to end. I apologize. Deuteronomy 23, verse 1. Good and loud. No one whose testicles are crushed or whose male organ is cut off shall enter the assembly of God. Read it one more time. I want to make sure everybody got the first part. <laughs> no one whose testicles are crushed or whose male organ is cut off shall enter the assembly of God. Gee whiz. We went from Godzilla to Superman to... Ouch. Okay. Somebody read Leviticus 21, 16 through 21. Yeah, Leviticus chapter 21, verses 16 through 21. Okay, uh, and the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to Aaron saying, none of your offspring throughout their generations who has a blemish may, may approach to offer the bread of his God. For no one who has a blemish shall draw near a man blind or lame, or one who has a mutilated face, or a limb too long, or a man who has an injured foot, or an injured hand, or a hunchback, or a dwarf, or a man with a defect in his sight, or an itching disease, or scabs, or crushed testicles. All righty. Here we are, them crushed testicles again. Man, there's this guy preaching about today on Sunday. I thought we were going to talk about Jesus loving us. We are. I'll keep my mouth shut of what I just thought. I'll tell you at lunch. Anyway, this is what the Word says. You know, I'm not going to say I have all the answers for this homosexual issue that has come up in the church over the last couple of years. But I'm going to say this much to you. I am convinced, just like the atomic bomb, just like the Jesus movement, just like believing God for houses, God is using this homosexual issue to transform his church. We just read that the word of God says... In De Deuteronomy 23, verse 1, anybody with crushed testicles or that's mutilated in his ma male area cannot come into the presence of God. The second one it was anybody who is a priest could not serve. Now, in the King James Version of, of that, if you had that, there's a word that they use for those wonderful phrases called crushed testicles and all those, that stuff. It's called eunuch. whether by choice or not by choice. Now, I'm not going to read it to you for the sake of time, but I want to bring your attention to Acts chapter 8. There's a story of a young man by the name of Philip, good Jewish boy. 
At his bar mitzvah, like every little Jewish boy, you have to have memorized the Torah so you know exactly what the Torah says. And the Spirit of God says, I want you to go down this particular road. I'll give it to you if you need to know. I want you to go to down... I want you to go uh, down from Jerusalem to Gaza. And you're going to go through a desert place. So he arose. And as he's going, he meets a man who's Ethiopian who was a eunuch. And this, he hears the man reading from Isaiah. And I'll tell you why in a moment. He hears the man reading from Isaiah. And as he's reading from Isaiah, the Lord tells him, share with him. So he gets in the cart with the Ethiopian eunuch, and the Ethiopian eunuch says, who is he talking about? And of course, no sooner does he start sharing, he opens the gospel of Jesus. That's who he's talking about. Well, the eunuch is excited about this because there is something in a few verses later, and it tells you exactly where he was reading in Isaiah, a, few, a chapter or so later where that section ends, it says something there. The bottom line is this. Once he shares with the eunuch... The eunuch says, well, is there anything preventing me from being baptized then? And Philip says, no. Let's get off the cart right now. Now, here's a guy that knows what Deuteronomy 23 says. You're not coming into the presence of the Lord. He's a guy who knows what Leviticus 21 says. Oh, no, you can't even serve God and offer bread. But here's Philip, by the obedience of the Spirit and the compassion of the Christ, that doesn't only do that, but he's about to usher him right into the face of God through that baptism. Because the priesthood of Melchizedek supersedes anything that Levi offers. And he takes him, he baptizes him, they go into the water, Philip disappears, the eunuch comes up saved, delivered, and excited. And you know what it doesn't say? It doesn't say anything about the eunuch changing. So who was really converted in the story? Was it the eunuch or Philip? It was Philip. He had to be converted from his religious thinking of rules, of what's right and what's wrong, what's good and what's evil, and what's supposed to be accepted, into becoming a man of the spirit of the order of Melchizedek.